Good morning to you, brothers and sisters. Will you join me in the scriptures? Again, um, we're going to Matthew first. Appreciate it. If you would uh, stop by and look at the Mark the Peril stuff, and our burden uh, coming out of fasting and, and prayer. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9. A couple of years ago, our burden was for the persecuted church. And particularly what was going on in ISIS-controlled territories in Syria and Iraq. And as they were, and, and, and if you wear the patch, as I have, if you wear the T-shirt, you'll find people all over the place who have no idea what that is, and they will ask you, including you'll find uh, a warm response from people who know Arabic, and they'll go, oh, do you know what that is? And you go, yeah, I know what it is, but do you know what it means? It is... It is not, uh, it's not necessarily a Christian symbol, but it has become this thing that they have tagged the houses with it, the condemned. And so they are followers, they consider the Christians followers of the Nazarene, so they call them Nasrani. Nasrani, and so this N is that statement. And it provides an opportunity for you to, to tell the story, to talk about the real suffering, the real persecuted minority on earth. And just for the record, over and you, most of you guys, are, even if you don't know a whole lot of history, you know that the Roman Empire aggressively persecuted the church. First three centuries of church history, the Roman Empire fed Christians to lions for entertainment, made human tortures out of them, such things, and they slaughtered. Listen to this: in three centuries, six million Jew uh, Christians, six million Christians. And, and um, consider then the pace that the last decade has actually experienced has outpaced anything in any of the previous time in the history of Christianity. The last 10 years, more than 1 million in a decade. I'm going to repeat, the first three centuries, 6 million. 6 million over three centuries. The last decade, one million worldwide. Between the uh, communist Chinese government and the jihadist movements revived in this world, massive revival of Islam and its goals and objectives. You've heard, of course, you remember when our President George W. Bush uh, presumed to act as theologian-in-chief and announced that Islam was a religion of peace. You remember that? Well, it was a reality that uh, our political leaders needed to acknowledge there were such things as peaceful, peaceful Muslims. Um, consider, just for a moment before we go into our study, just consider this. If you imagine a scale, imagine a scale, on one end of the scale are peaceful Muslims, and they interpret all the things that Muhammad said about jihad as being spiritual inner conflict. Okay? They're not trying to take over the world. And on the other end of that scale, there are jihadists who really do actually believe and want to act like and live like their, their founder, Muhammad, and they believe that they must violently take over the world. And Islam means submission. There's a reality between the extremes. And perhaps when our then-president, George W. Bush, said Islam is a religion of peace, and he was describing this portion, perhaps the line between, separating the two might have been here, with a, a vast majority of the Muslim world being peaceful. 
It's true. 80% of the people who identify themselves as Muslim have never even read the Quran. So they have a lot in common with a lot of modern Christianity that has never ever read the Bible. That, is, that was a true statement. A few years later, and please, please let me not, not offend you or, or blow your mind completely, but a few years later, we elected a president who claimed to be Christian, but did more to advance the cause of Islam worldwide than anyone has ever done in American history, even redirecting NASA to become a Muslim outreach, the space program. You can debate with me about that after the service if you will, but one thing is abundantly clear. As a result of his leadership, an Islamic caliphate was established, an Islamic state. And when that took place, the needle separating militant Islam from peaceful Islam slid way across the scale. Because there were all kinds of Islamic people, young men in particular, that looked and said, there's an actual caliphate there's actually, people are taking over. Perhaps it's not later, perhaps it's now. And the numbers changed drastically. <clears throat> and the church has suffered in the Middle East greatly. We have a, a burden to support the Christians and to raise awareness of their suffering and to tell their story. You have that opportunity. Somebody asks you what that is. If you, if you pick one up or you, or you wear that or the t-shirt or one of those things. Thank you. Thanks for letting me say that. Matthew chapter 9. There's a couple of, I'm going to try to, in a few minutes, cover a whole lot of scripture. I am a pastor of a Catholic chapel, and consequently, I have a bookmark that tells me where I'm supposed to be this morning if I'm at home. I'm going to pick up right where I left off. And our journey, which begins at one end of the Bible and works its way all the way through, because we are all about the whole counsel of God, just as you are here. <clears throat> but as a visitor... As a guest speaker, I depart from that in order to bring you something that I think could edify, should encourage you. Matthew chapter 9, we have the calling of Matthew Levi. Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 9. It says, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. <laughs> it's difficult for us to appreciate how Matthew would just get up and go because of two words. But you have to understand their culture. Their culture was different from our culture. We have scouts that go out from colleges, and generally they're looking for athletes. And the scouts are trying to recruit the athlete to that, that particular school. But there are certainly some scouts that work for big corporations and they're out looking for really talented people that they can hire. In Israel, the rabbis were always looking. The rabbis were looking for the very promising, in a culture where wisdom and understanding and knowledge were highly regarded, they were looking for people that showed promise and potential. And the rabbi would approach the student. It wasn't generally the practice of the student approaching the rabbi saying, I want to be one of your, your students. Can I? Can, would you? Instead, the rabbi would choose. And for a, a rabbi to approach someone with those words, follow me, they understood what it meant in that context, and it meant go where I'm going, learn on the way. Le literally, learn in the dust of your teacher, in the dust of your rabbi. 
So Matthew, he's working for the Roman government. He's, he is in a job that has him at odds with everyone in his country. They consider him a traitor. And this rabbi walks up and says, I'm picking you. I choose you. Follow me. Wow. And he, he immediately, he, he got up and he followed. He left a lot behind. It is in verse 10 where it says, And it came to pass as Jesus said it meet in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And so, indication here, the house is the house of Matthew Levi, who has met Jesus the Messiah. I don't know that Matthew Levi fully appreciates who it is that called him. None of the twelve really do yet. But he knows this. He has experienced grace. And he wants his friends to experience that. No doubt he's having a going away party for himself. And he invites all of the publicans and sinners. Once they realize that this particular rabbi would choose someone like Matthew Levi, they come to the party. They come to the feast. Verse 11 says, When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? It was a big deal because in that culture they considered eating an act of intimacy. They're a culture that's all about clean versus unclean. God established that understanding that, that, that without... Think about this. Millenniums, not centuries, millenniums before anybody knew what microbes were, and what made things truly contaminated. God knew, the Creator. He reveals that He is actually the Creator, the God of creation, by the law, including the laws of cleanliness, including the kosher diet. God reveals that He is the one who knows all about and designed microbiology Think from, from the introduction of sin, from Adam all the way to Louis Pasteur, 1863, we had no idea what unclean really meant. The Jews, they, in the covenant with God, the people of Israel, had to just trust. Just trusting. They understood clean versus unclean. And to eat with a Gentile. A Gentile who interacts with, has no regard for clean versus unclean, was to contaminate yourself. <laughs> so Pharisees are horrified that he is sitting with publicans and sinners, people whose hands actually handle filthy, idolatrous, image-bearing Roman currency. How in the world could you eat with those filthy people? They're horrified. Verse 12, but when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, and his answer, his answer blows my mind, his answer, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. <laughs> that, that could have been taken in such a massively offensive way by the people he's at, meet, he, he's at the meal with, right? He just called them all sickos. He just, he just identified all of them as being sick people. He doesn't dance around that. They that are whole. You're healthy, you don't, you don't need a doctor. 
But those who are sick, they need the doctor. And he goes on to say, but go and learn what this meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. But I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So his purpose for being with the publicans and sinners was to make them well, to heal them of their sickness. To call them to repentance. What does repentance mean? What does the word repent mean? The verb, repent, the Greek word is metanoia, and it means change your mind. Come to call them to change their minds. They've been living one way, and they need to change their way of thinking, which will ultimately change the way they live as well. So, with this understanding in mind, Jesus Christ is the sin doctor. He's the great physician. He called himself that. He proved himself to be that. The only one that can heal. The only one that can fix us what's really wrong with us. The deepest part of our being. Now with that in mind, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. And let us connect that reality. Luke chapter 10. Let's connect that reality to another story that we're all very familiar with. A story that we know well. Even the Bible publishers have at the top of the page the story of the Good Samaritan, which is a real nasty dig on the Samaritans. You got that one good one. The Lord didn't call it the story of the Good Samaritan. Nobody's good, only God. All of us guys, all of us are varying degrees of bad. You all know that, right? We're all varying degrees of bad. We're all sinners. We all fall short. And what a, what a, a silly thought. The good Samaritan. So that's, uh, that's the not inspired part of your Bible up there. The publisher just trying to help you find your way around. But the Lord, when he tells the story, he'll go, a certain Samaritan. He doesn't go, well, there was a good Samaritan. There's no good humans, truthfully, and we waste our time going, why do bad things happen to good people? Because, well, there's no good people. We're all varying degrees of bad. And we're so messed up that we don't even know. We think that less bad is good. We're like, man, I'm less bad than I ever was. I'm doing good. I have not, I have not robbed a bank this month. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing good, man. Our meter's broken. Less bad does not equal good. God is good. Good equals perfect, and none of us are. What a waste of time to compare our lack to one another's. What a stupid waste of time. If you do go about doing that, you'll find some people that are worse than you. If you look hard enough, <laughs> you can find some. At least some that you are pretty sure are worse than you, but you never can tell. And you'll find some people that are better than you, not as bad as you. Maybe. I guess that's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? All a matter of point of view. <laughs> well, but if we compare ourselves to God, we all are sinners. We all fall short. Man, what a waste of time. Well, I'm not as bad as you. And that is a common reaction to the person you're trying to share your faith with. You tell them they're sinners and they'll almost always dig in and go, Well, now, wait a minute. I don't think I'm any worse than anybody else. And you've got to go, Well, who said anything about you comparing yourself to anybody else? We're talking about compared to God. You might even give them. You know what? In many ways, you're probably even better than me, but that's irrelevant. Compared to God, we are all sinners. All of us. Think about how many times people, you ask them, so what do you think you are? Are you like, what would you call yourself? Would you call yourself a good person? 
I, I am, am basically a good person. And you've got to go, oh, no, no, basically, basically a good person. This implies not quite good, not if you mean by perfect. Most people just mean I'm a good enough person. And then you've got to go, well, well, says who? Well, not according to God. He's indicted us all as sinners. So anyway, all that about the fact that this is a story about a certain Samaritan. He ain't the good one. And like all the other ones are really bad. In answering the question of a certain lawyer, well, let's go to chapter 10, verse 23. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes. Would see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to have eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. And when he says, this do, and thou shalt live, that means, do this perfectly, and thou shalt live. Perfectly love God, so that you never violate his law. Perfectly love your fellow man, so that you never wrong your fellow man, thus violating God's law. Two tables of the law. Six commands with regard to our relationship with God. Four commands with regard to our relationship with our fellow man. Keep them perfectly. Do that and you'll live. But he, of course, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? So he's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. And he's like, we've got to define our terms. Exactly who, I get the loving God part, all right, but who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? In order to answer that man's question, the Lord's going to tell him a story in verse 30. Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, the Levite, when he was in the, at the place, he came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast. And brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed out, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, and said unto them, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. So the answer to the question was, Who is your neighbor? That's your fellow man. 
Who is your neighbor is determined by what you do to them. You have an obligation to them. You have an obligation to every single one of your fellow humans. That's really not the thing I wanted to focus on. But rather, in the story, let's consider, it's a story about somebody who was victimized. That is the nature of the world that you and I live in, under the influence of sin. Since, ever since sin came into the picture through Adam, by one man sin passed upon all men, and death came by sin. And ever since the introduction of sin, people have been suffering. God said that would be the case. He told Adam sorrow would characterize the existence of man. He told Eve sorrow. He used the word sorrow twice with Eve. And I personally believe, it's my personal observation, because of the very design of God and the capacity that women have to feel deeper while at the same time being physically weaker. I believe women suffer twice as much as men do in the world that we live in, and they are victimized more. Any winding man who wants to argue with me about that is welcome to him. You'll be wrong, even at the end of the argument. We all suffer, we're all victimized, but the women have it worse. They have greater capacity to hurt, with a greater capacity to feel. Man feelings are small, women feelings are huge, they're giant. And that's just the reality. Everybody shops at Walmart knows that. And if, if you are educated beyond your intelligence, if you've been in school, school of man too long on the university level, you no longer believe in those genders. Repent. Change your mind. You're wrong. So the story is about someone who is victimized. Because that's what happens in this world. And it's interesting how the Lord described it. This particular road, he, he, he said a guy was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And everybody knows that road is treacherous. It passes through the Judean wilderness. And there's all these, these valleys and, and, and uh, cliffs and caves. Caves are the dens of thieves for the road pirates. And they were everywhere. Everybody knew of this particular road. And it had a reputation when he told the story. He said this particular guy... On that road fell among thieves, they, they took from him, and they left him with nothing. They left him naked, wounded, and interestingly, the Lord, the Lord uses a fraction here in verse 30. They left him half dead. Half dead, that's, I mean, that's just the reality. Forget your cup half full or half empty. Perspective, positive thinking or negative thinking. The Lord Jesus said the guy was half dead. Not half alive. He was half dead. What was going to make him all the way dead? Well, neglect. He's unable to do anything about his wounds. The elements are going to finish him off. His potential loss of blood is his own injuries are going to worsen. Infection. Infection will. You hear people say things. There's these stupid sayings like, you know, time's a healer. Time heals all wounds. That's a lie from hell. Time's a killer. Time's a rotter. Time itself is no healer. What if you leave those wounds alone? What if they're not dealt with? What if they're not bound up? 
What if they're not disinfected? They will finish killing you. No, time doesn't heal everything. Time's no healer. Time is just as much killer. Being left there alone, the guy was going to go from half dead to all the way dead. Two people pass by. We won't focus much on them. They go by on the other side of the road. People that would have been expected to do something. One a, a Levite, the other a priest. And certainly the, the, the assumption is that the man who fell among thieves is a fellow Jew. But they don't help him. But instead the unlikely one. Culturally, the Samaritan, the half-breed, the, the people that are even confused about their religion, and they are confused. Man, the Lord Jesus acknowledged that in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan lady. He said, you, you Samaritans, you, uh, you worship. Well, you don't know what, for salvation is of the Jews. Lord Jesus acknowledged their religious confusion. There's such a thing as truth, and that they, Samaritans, they didn't have it. But an unlikely man, a Samaritan, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, and just like you and me, just like this guy who happens to be the victim in this story, he's journeying. He's on a journey. We're all on a journey. And our journey takes us through places and takes us past people. But unlike the other two, as he came to where he was, he saw him. And he had compassion on him. Now, you know what? There's an awful lot of people today that instead of doing something, instead of having compassion on him and then going to him and doing something, instead they stand there having a philosophical crisis. And they just stand there going, Why does God let such things happen? That's a stupid response to trouble. Have you noted I like that word stupid? Well, it just applies to so much anymore. It's just, there's so much stupid in the world. And it's a, it is a stupid waste of time to stand there as a created being in a philosophical crisis acting like God is responsible. The fact is, there is suffering in this world. There are thieves who will in fact wound. They will take, they'll exploit. Because God has given all of us the freedom to choose. The existence of evil is plain, the byproduct of free will. God has granted it to all of us. Complain about it. We complain about it constantly. We complain about the fruit of free will. But it is a reality. God doesn't make even the bad people do what they're supposed to do. But what they have done to this man provides an opportunity for another man to be put to the test. And to demonstrate that while there is, in fact, evil at work, there is also good at work in the world. And that is a reality. What a, what a ridiculous thing for people to look and see. There's evil. There's evil. There is evil. There cannot be good. How do you conclude that? How would you know evil to be evil if you didn't have some reference point? For good. Now, instead of standing there in philosophical crisis in his skinny pants, the certain Samaritan, instead of being all full of angst and drama, 
focuses on someone in need. And I do believe that is what we are called to do. That is, in fact, what the Lord is calling the lawyer to do who asks the question. So he goes to him. He has compassion on him. Do you see what is written here? In verse 34, he went to him pouring in. He bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine. Guys, he did first aid. But that first aid involves binding up wounds. It involves disinfecting and soothing. Now, you don't just tell people, listen, just get over it, okay? Hey, just get over it. And I'm all about telling men to get over it. I do that. The drama, the things that are not real live injuries, the silly drama, the silly whininess of so many men actually does need to be confronted. And, and people need to actually hear from someone. You're not bleeding. Get thee over it. But at the same time, there are people who are bleeding and whose wounds are infected and they need to be bound up and they need to be disinfected. This, this is an interesting thing that even before centuries, millenniums before the discovery of microbes, germs, the little invisible killers, people had discovered the cleansing effect of alcohol. They didn't know why. They just knew that alcohol cleans. Wounds cleansed with alcohol healed. Wounds that were not, it got infected. It's amazing. So by this point in history, that is known. The man pours in oil and wine and he binds up what is broken. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a need for us to bind up what is broken, to, to reinforce. You put a splint on a broken leg and you get off it and you let it heal. And sometimes it is necessary to put someone in full traction, a full body cast. I really do believe that's what we do with programs that the world patronizingly calls faith-based. We run one of those and have for many decades. It's not a faith-based rehab because you can't rehab what's never been halved anyway. It's, it's not a, it is nothing other than it is residential discipleship, and in many ways it is putting someone in traction and saying, listen, we're going to run your life for the next few months. You just stay here, do what we tell you, and you'll find yourself getting better. The full-time reinforcement of fellowship. But pouring in... Oil and wine, does that not speak of the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, the oil and the wine of the Spirit? Does it not also speak of the, the blood of our Savior? And biblical truth, the, the sword of the Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, being poured in, cleansing, soothing, sometimes burning, like the wine would, Sometimes soothing is the oil. But there's one other thing I want to draw your attention to, besides our obligation to actually minister to people, besides our obligation to pour in oil and wine. Some of us here today are still ourselves infected, wounded victims. Years, sometimes decades, after the thieves are long gone, we're still unhealed. Allow the Lord to cleanse and disinfect and soothe and heal. Allow him to bind up what is broken. 
Let the Spirit of God do that. Obey his word and then actually do the things he says with regard to forgiveness and actually forgive. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It is a choice. A choice. And as an act of your will, you will cancel the debt, not collect on it. And you'll pray good for the one that wronged you. I highly recommend it as someone who himself was once so very infected. So infected. There was a time in my youth my only goal was to grow up and get big enough to take vengeance on the world. This weird little kid would sit around drawing pictures of big grown-up me, as muscular as I could get, choking. Anybody saw my pictures would have had me in an institution. <laughs> there we go. That kid's disturbed, and indeed, he was. Until the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, faith coming by hearing, right through my eyes, the oil and wine of his spirit was poured right through my ears, poured into my heart, burning at times, soothing, cleansing. All the change. I'm not an infected, wounded victim. I am healed by his grace. Man, I'm on my journey with a, with a source, cleansing, healing. I invite you on that journey to be those kind of people that let the Lord use you to pour in oil and wine, to bind up wounds. But there's another character here. There's another reality that I'm in danger of going way over as we get into this, but I'm going to do it here. Hang on now. There is an end. There's not just a little first aid there on the side of the road going, hey, hoping for you, rooting for you, get over it, and, and you know, on his journey... He puts this man on his own beast, which means he's now walking. He assumes responsibility. He takes him somewhere. He doesn't leave him there. The road, that Jericho road is no place to heal. There's a place to heal. They didn't have hospitals. The ancient world didn't have that. They didn't have hospitals. Do you know that? Do you know the word hospital has a root? And that is hospitality. It was the inn. That was the hospital. It was the end. Took him somewhere where he could heal. A place where he would not be further victimized by the elements. A place where he would not be because there's walls at the end. And there's a host. And the host is going to see to it. That there are no thieves coming in here taking, wounding. This certain Samaritan assumed responsibility for a wounded man and then took him somewhere where he had confidence that he could continue to heal. He trusted someone. He supported him. He assumed responsibility for the guy. Offered to pay his bill. Put his name on the, on the ledger and said, listen, I'll, I'll settle up if he, if he spends more, if it costs more for him to continue to heal. I'll, I'll Take care of that when I see you again. I'll pass back through here. Is not the local church, this church here in Napa Valley, supposed to be such an inn, such a hospitable place? <laughs> Shouldn't we be a hospital? Are we not those who have been healed, cleansed from our sickness by the great physician, is not this his place? Don't we work for him? 
and is not then your spiritual leadership, your pastor, the host, the person responsible as steward, the person who is responsible to see to it that the wolves are outside the walls. Yeah, man. As under-shepherds, as pastors, those who work for the good shepherd, the good shepherd, it is our job to stay on duty and to remain vigilant. The Apostle Paul told the elders at Ephesus, you ought to check that one out. Elders um, really have... The, the best text is not in First Timothy or the pastoral epistles. It's right there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. That brief little exchange between the Apostle Paul and the elders from Ephesus tell us the ministry of the spiritual leader. And the Lord, you know, the Apostle Paul warns those elders that he goes, I know after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. Well, it's another way of saying they're not coming while I'm here. After my departure, they'll come. They ain't coming while I'm here. The 23rd Psalm, the shepherd psalm, as we call it, David speaking of the Lord, his, his shepherd, and he goes, I, Lord's my shepherd. I'll suffer no lack. He even says, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Why would the sheep be comforted by the fact that his shepherd's got a rod? Well, in case you don't know, the rod was a weapon. And the rod wasn't used on the sheep. The rod was for the wolf. And the sheep, they get the staff. They're guided by the staff. A good pastor, a good spiritual leader is responsible for the condition of the inn. He is, in fact, the steward. He is responsible to make sure that the food is good, that people can heal, that can be healthy there. It's a healthy environment, a safe place. I encourage you as members of this church family, this is good pasture where the Word of God is being taught. There are certain realities, oh, there are statistics that would blow your mind with regard to the current state of American Christianity. There are certain things you probably are aware of and some things that you're not aware of. Pew Research Center. They recently ran an article giving insight into the problem of Christianity in America. Unsurprisingly, a substantial number of American Christians across every denomination now believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Do you know that? Which, by the way, abortion, that's the murder of a little human that's been conceived. That's, that's, that's defining a human being as not being fully human and the freedom to execute them. A majority of mainline Protestants now hold this view, along with almost half of all Catholics, evangelicals, have a smaller share, but still around 33% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians actually believe it should be legal, legal, to murder children. How about that? Of course, on the topic of marriage, the situation's even grimmer. Two-thirds of Catholics and mainline Protestants support um, homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage. Over one-third of evangelicals are in the same boat. One-third of evangelicals in America now believe, and this is brand new in the history of the world, they now believe marriage can, in fact, be redefined. The vast majority of Christians see no problem with divorce. As a matter of fact, about 75% of all divorced couples in America are Christians. Overall, a staggering number of American Christians explicitly disagree with the 
definitions of marriage and adultery that Christ himself provided. Probably goes without saying that the majority of Christian men are also regular porn viewers, and now a growing number of Christian women as well. None of this matters in their minds anyway because according to the majority of Christians in America, everyone goes to heaven regardless. The vast majority of what calls themselves Christians in America believes everybody goes to heaven. They've become universalists and don't even know it. About 30% of Christians between the age of 30 and 64 do not believe hell exists. And therefore, there's no need for a savior. No, Jesus Christ has been recast as some kind of a self-improvement, self-help guru. He's all about upgrading you and making you nicer so you can have your best life now, but he's not actually savior because there's nothing to be saved from, they believe. The heresy gets worse. Half believe that Jesus Christ is a created being. Half of those who call themselves Christians in America believe Jesus Christ is a created being. You know what that means? That means that they've actually rejected the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And they don't even know that. They're, they, they're, they're no longer Christian. But they call themselves Christian. 30% don't even believe that there is one true God. 30% of those who call themselves Christian do not believe there is this one true God. And over 60% of those who call themselves Christian in America right now believe that all forms of worship are equally valid. Which means... They have rejected the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except by me. I shared that sad piece of news with you. I tell you, it does really actually matter where you go and what kind of host you got at your inn. Because who is responsible for that? Who is, who is responsible for those awful statistics? The pastors, the clergymen of our American Christians, who are really not Christians. They're given over to self-deception. Now, in the current climate, in the consumer-oriented sort of churchianity, talent has become more highly prized than character and doctrine. Pastors are no longer really trainers. They've become entertainers in a new form of massive um, inspirational entertainment. The Bible is seldom visited. Christianity in America has become more theologically anemic and sicker and infected with all kinds of heresy than it has ever been. So does it really does it matter where you go to church? Yeah, it does. For every single mega church that breaks ground to build something awesome and huge and slick, three, at least three, little churches close up, dissolve. And what they're producing, frankly, is about 100 miles wide and about two inches deep. It is not the kind of Christianity that will stand and say, you can kill me, but I will not deny him. We have, right now, things Christianity has never had. We got monstrous Christian networks. We have a Christian music industry that is like one-sixth or more of all record sales in America. We've got mass media and mega churches, and we've got the weakest, dumbest, sickest version of Christianity that America has ever seen. 
Don't be a part of it. But instead, exercise discernment. Instead of looking for the best show in town, instead of treating a church like a restaurant, where really it's all about the aesthetics, the atmosphere, the music, the live band, instead, it should be about the food. It's all about the food. Because you can eat, there's a lot of places where you can go eat, and it's just, they're serving Twinkies, and, and it's great while you're there, but it won't make you healthy. It won't make you strong. Oh, it matters. It matters very much. I encourage you again, study that 20th chapter of the book of Acts, and the Apostle Paul said to the elders, he said, you know how I was with you at all seasons, serving the Lord day and night. I taught you publicly and privately. I do believe in a little local church where people take care of each other, where they study the Word together, and they go out from church on Sunday with oil and wine, bandages, and they bring them in. A place where they know they're going to be fed well and they're going to get better and they're going to get strong and they're going to heal. You can have that confidence. I believe you can have that confidence here. This church has a good testimony. And I commend you for being here. Well, will you please pray with me? I'm going over. Let's pray. We'll get out of here. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to speak your word, read and explain some verses. And you've, You've listened. You have watched. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you were pleased, you were honored, You are the only way any of us are ever going to live. You're the sin doctor and the only one that can actually bring healing. We would love to serve you. Pray that you'd find us usable. Thank you for this church and for the spiritual stewardship here. Pastor Bill, we thank you, Lord, for the, the kind of stewardship that would cause him, those who serve together with him, to recognize Pastor Rob, and the work that you have done and your hand upon him. We pray for the season that this church family steps into in that transition, that you would truly be honored and that the great work that you want to do through this people would be accomplished. It has never been about the massive multitudes. Lord, you use and you choose to use the faithful handful. You, Lord Jesus, had no problem breaking the multitude up and sending them away, offended. Your focus was on the 12 and the 120. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to have your perspective in these crazy days. I pray, Lord, your blessing upon this church family. In the name and for the glory of Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace to you.